Hello and welcome to the Upon Further Review podcast, brought to you by Field Street Baptist Church. On this podcast, your host, Cody Kitchen, sits across the table from Pastor John Hall as he reviews his Sunday sermon from the week before. Welcome to Upon Further Review podcast. I'm your host, Cody Kitchen, and joined with me is my friend, Dr. John Hall. Good afternoon, everyone. We are still in Luke in our series, and we are going verse by verse. And this past Sunday, we were in Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 24, and the title of the message was The Joy of Results. I thought it was a great message on Sunday. And as you prepare, John, what are some things that came to mind? Thank you for the kind words regarding the sermon. I was struck initially that there is such joy in visible results. Hmm. For the disciples, for you, for me, we're all just have a romanticism about yeah. visible, tangible, measurable results. And along those lines that we must ultimately labor to find a contentment when we do not see. Hmm visible results and that has been a long journey for me i like to win we like to win i don't know anybody just you know i'm i'm comfortable and okay with losing we we want to see growth we like growth we want to see progress we long to see the fruits of our labors and sometimes the lord allows us to see those visible results and we rejoice in that but more often than not we don't get to see the results of our labors in ministry. So I suppose those are initial thoughts that came to my mind in preparing the message. That's really good. And you introduced the message, it's a perfect segue, um, by saying that we are a results-oriented society and that we love positive results. And you're absolutely correct, we are. And you talked about that the 72 were sent out and they come back with these results. And your first point that you made was to note the return of the 72 and their unbridled joy, which was in verse 17. And I love that first point because I can only imagine that the joy that was being expressed by the 72. I'm, I think it's, I can say, I don't know if it's this, obviously the same joy, but I think we all have experienced that kind of joy when we, are are privileged with someone coming to know Christ and we get to be a part of that process. That's joyful. Um, It's exciting. And so, you know, they witnessed the power of Christ through them and only had one response, which was joy. And I think that's so fascinating. And you point out that it was not of their own authority, but of Christ. And I love that you pointed out that we have a real enemy being Satan and that even this enemy is subject to King Christ. And you emphasize the point that the 72 had power over the enemy because of Jesus Christ in their life. And so my question to you is, can you expound on what it means to have authority over Satan in our lives personally? That's a really loaded uh, (laughs) question. So I want to be careful in how I answer that question, while I think it's a good question, sure. no, question no question about the fact that it's a good question. <laughs> uh, on our own, I would begin by saying, on our own, apart from the authority of Christ 
in us and working through us, we have no authority over Satan and his armies. Mm. However, with Christ and with the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God, according to the Scripture, we can uh, resist the enemy and he will flee from us. So I think one of the most important ways in which we can resist the enemy and have authority over him with Christ is to know the truth. And the truth of the Word of God is going to be both the best offense and defense against that which is a lie. And we know that the enemy traffics in lies, deceptions, half-truths. And so we have to keep in mind that he really is our enemy. He is not our friend. And even though he may masquerade as a friend, Hmm. he is not. And he is bent to destroy our witness. And he will do whatever he needs and can do to harm us. And we must gird up ourselves in the armor of God. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 6, that we arm ourselves and we put on the appropriate armor and then we use the appropriate offensive weapons, which are, of course, prayer and the Word of God. So I would never want to give anyone the impression that they should just, you know, take on the forces of evil on their own because you're going to be way outmatched. But with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the Word of God in our hearts and minds, and Christ and His authority both over us and over darkness in the realm of darkness, we can be assured that we're going to have our share of victories too. I I think the enemy just whips all of us at least some of the time. Hmm. But we know the ultimate outcome of the conflict, which has been settled at Calvary. That's right. And due to the both the death and resurrection of Christ, Satan is a defeated foe. But Amen. He, he's putting up an awfully good fight, and we should never take him lightly. I think one of the most clever things the enemy has done has convinced us he's to be taken lightly, and, and you know, we— kids dress up at Halloween, Mm. so to speak. This is kind of a goofy example, but if he can get us to laugh about him, then we take him less seriously. Mm. And so I think we should remember that he's the arch enemy of God and God's people, and we need to be constantly alert to that reality. That's really good, and I appreciate that answer. And I think it's my comment on it is going to be a perfect segue into the the second question that I have, you, and you said it, because of Calvary, we have victory. And it's wild to me, and I don't, we'll never un- be able to understand this, I don't think, that Satan already knows he's lost. Yes. And that's what's wild, is, he, is he's still trying to get as many people mm-hmm. to come with him. Well, that's and, what makes him so dangerous. He's, exactly. He's wounded, and he knows he's on borrowed time, and he, he has no scruples. None. That's good. And the whole point of that folks is the fact that um, salvation is our only key into victory and um, that is you know your second point was was that you know to note the appropriate reason for these 72 for their joy and and once again you pointed it back to what scripture says on Jesus's response and that that Jesus lovingly redirected their hearts to their salvation 
And I think that's so clever on how Jesus responded in that way because that our ultimate joy should come from our personal relationship with Jesus. And so my question is, can you tell us about a time in your life personally when Jesus redirected your heart during a situation like this one? Thank you for the question. Um, In thinking about it, of a personal example, what I came back to was uh, my first pastorate right out of seminary. I graduated from seminary in May, but I actually began my first pastorate on Easter Sunday in April of that same year. And I don't know, I just had it in my head for some reason that every time I preached, there was going to be some great visible response to it. Hmm. And so when it did not happen, for weeks on end, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, just nothing happened that I could see. It was kind of a kick in the teeth. I was, um, I didn't know what to do with that. And the Lord, in his gentle and kind nature, um, redirected my sense of expectation that really what he expected from me was to be prepared and prayerful and to do the best I was capable of doing and concern myself much less with the results of those efforts and that he was in charge of that and that was a hard lesson for me to learn for a lot of factors I suppose one of which was my own immaturity my own uh, lack of of a deeper understanding of what is at play in the kingdom when we Uh. labor for the Lord and I had to come to a place where I had to be at complete peace with the fact that I may preach my guts out and preach my heart out, which I try to do every Lord's Day. Every time I get the opportunity, I want to put it all out there. And I just had to let go of the fact that if if no one visibly responded, that I had somehow failed. And the Lord lovingly redirected my thinking to a more mature perspective. And did I get it right away? No, I did not. I struggled with it for a while. And it's probably only of late where I'm, I'm at complete peace that sure. my responsibility is to do only what I can do to control only the factors I control and to completely commit to those factors to be very well prepared to be prayerful to be as ready as I'm capable of being and then you put it out there the best way you know how and trust God with what he wants to do with it and I've had to learn through the years that I know the word does not come back void hmm. So we trust God at his word that any time his word is put out there, he is doing something with it. He just doesn't always pull back the veil so that we can observe it firsthand and in that moment. It may take another lifetime in eternity to for God to show us, hey, here are the the fruits of your labors in my vineyard. That's good. Thank you. That's good. And you know, it's so hard, at least for me, and I could be, you could tell me that I'm completely wrong in this, and that's fine, but I, I, I think that it's, it's so hard for us to really explain the joy of the Lord in the sense of, you know, when we're joyous, we're joyous, and it's hard to explain what that feels like. Sure. It's just joy. I mean, that's the best way to explain it, and so absolutely, I think it's when we don't have that joy, we, we know what we're missing because we felt that joy before, and so it's definitely a good truth to just 
we're not always going to have that joy because we're human. Um, but a good point that we always need to be willing and ready to turn back to that joy yes. um, in our salvation and continue to run to who Jesus is. And so I appreciate yeah, you for being honest. Yeah, thank you. Um, and the last point that you made um, was to notice the unique relationship between the Father and the Son. And before I continue, I think to be completely open and honest, I love these when it always points back to the Trinity. Mm -hmm. I just, I love when we can read through Scripture and almost everywhere in Scripture we see the Trinity somehow in Scripture. And so um, I'll try not to spend all all the time on on this last point, but you pointed out on Sunday that that these verses point to the Trinity. You said Jesus the Son was going to do the Father's will and the power of the Holy Spirit, and each had a specific function. You made the point that apart from salvation, we cannot know who God is. And verse 22 says, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. So my question is, is what does it mean in this verse that the Son determines to reveal him? (laughs) Well, I love the question. Um, (laughs) I, I'm so grateful that there is a frequent emphasis in the Word of God on the sovereignty of God hmm. in salvation. Amen. And I recognize that this doctrine, though it is very prevalent in all of the Scripture, is very difficult for many people to hear to study, to examine, and, and to contend with because it, it flies in the very face of the pride of man. Mm. And I think we would be well served to bring a completely, as much as possible, open mind to the Bible and consider carefully God's gracious and sovereign activity in our salvation. I'm afraid that in in many churches, the the people sitting in the pew have this idea that they are a cooperating partner with God in their salvation, Hmm. meaning simply that the person in the pew does his or her part and God does his part, and together, in cooperation with God, we get saved. Hmm. There's nowhere in Scripture where that is presented. Theologically, it's a term called synergism, where the idea of we cooperate with. Rather, what is presented in the pages of the Bible is what we call in theological circles monergism, where the emphasis is on mono, one, that God does it all. We love him because he first loved us, and I'm putting it quite simply at that point. And the idea of God's sovereignty in and over our salvation is so humbling. I think it, it compels us to, to worship God and praise him and give glory to him and to thank him for doing in us and for us what we could never do on our own. The only thing I bring to the table of salvation is my mess, <laughs> my sin, my need. I can offer nothing. It, that can be useful in God's hands so that together 
he gets me saved. Yeah. He did it all. Jonah 2.9 says salvation is of the Lord. Hmm. Uh, there are other instances in the scripture, John's gospel in particular, Romans. It's all over the Bible where the accent mark is put squarely and solely upon what God does in Christ to redeem the sinner. Hmm. It is absolutely true we come to Christ in repentance and in faith, but even the faith that we exercise is a gift from God according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So I, I think what Jesus is saying here as recorded in Luke's gospel is just another instance where we see that it is God who saves. And I recognize that's a challenging doctrine yeah. for many, but uh, if, if you are willing to lay down, and this is hard for people, it's hard for me, uh, to lay down your presuppositions before you come to the Scripture and you just read the Scripture and ask God to show you what is there, I believe he will do it. He did for me. I had I had an unbelievable life-changing experience in 2007 where I was confronted with these marvelous doctrines and they changed my life. Changed my preaching, changed my theology, changed my own relationship with God. It was it was marvelous. I would I would invite any student of the Bible to look at these doctrines and they're everywhere from Genesis to Revelation. It's profoundly uh, interesting. And I think the accent, what Jesus is doing here, in my view, is putting the accent mark on his work, what he does as commissioned and directed by God and what God does in the activity of our salvation. That's good. That's good. Some of y'all might have to repeat that over again, that, that segment, to, to fully get it. And that, that's really good. And I appreciate that and the honesty of that. And I think it's so important for us to understand that it takes nothing on our part and as humans we want we want it to be about us naturally and so it's such a good reminder to know that our salvation has nothing to do with us other than as you said bringing our load of junk that we have unto unto God so I appreciate that truth and as we close this is my favorite part of the podcast if I'm honest and so as we close John what are some final thoughts well uh, I, I would like to just gently remind our listeners that one of the uh, purposes of moving through a book of the Bible the way we've been moving through Luke, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is because um, the continuity of a book of the Bible, you, you don't, you, the preacher's less likely to be tempted to preach just on his hobby horses, what he's really comfortable preaching. We just, here's what's next. We deal with what's next. And then we get the whole counsel of the Word of God. And we bump up against uh, Trinitarian texts. We bump up against texts of Scripture that might otherwise make us a bit uncomfortable, but we have to deal with with what is is there in the text. And so I think my final thoughts today are just, you know, we keep coming at the Word of God, even though it's taking us a while. And I've jokingly said in in the worship services that we'll most likely be in the Gospel of Luke (laughs) until the next presidential election. But so be it. If that's what it takes uh, to soak up a book like Luke, I think the congregation is really the beneficiary of that kind of approach to preaching uh, where we go sequentially through a book of the Bible. You know, this is what's next. And so my final thoughts are along those lines that 
what is in, what's coming up in front of us in the Gospel of Luke is going to be absolutely remarkable. And I'm glad we're doing it that way. Absolutely. Even though I know it feels tedious, and you know, we joke about, hey, we're finally out of Luke 9. <laughs> but um, what's ahead of us is going to be really life-altering and trans- transforming. And I think that's completely predicated on just the power of God in His Word. Amen. That's good. And as always, I know y'all look forward to this segment every week. We are going to transition to the That Stupid segment. So, John, bring it to us. All right. Thank you. I've been thinking about this, and we talked about it earlier. I guess the question as we think about That Stupid is, what is the deal with all these fast food chicken places in Cleveland? (laughs) There's Chicken Express, Chick-fil-A, Popeye's, and now Cane's Chicken. What is it with all of these fast food chicken places? Why can't Cleburne support a Taco Bueno? Please bring back Taco Bueno. If I was a chicken, I would, I would avoid Cleburne uh, like the plague. Anyway, what do you think of all that, Cody? I think that's stupid. Yeah, that is stupid. And if you have any control of that, listen to this podcast. You know how we feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. And to end this session, we always say make Christ known by what you say and how you live. And we want to remind next week we're not going to have our podcast. And so, um, sorry, but that's all right. We will come back the week after. And um, we ask that you have a great week and would love and appreciate your positive feedback. See y'all. Thanks, Cody. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe to Upon Further Review so you never miss an episode. If you have any questions, please be sure to reach out to us at info at fieldstreet.com. Thanks for tuning in.